Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Well, hey there, it's Nico. By now, you probably know who I am, but awkwardly, I know a whole lot less about you. So many of you tell me that you're listening to the show and I really want to know you more. Who are you? Why are you tuning in? What do you want most from Suncast? Let us know by going to mysuncast.com forward slash survey. It takes just five minutes and we'll read every answer. That's mysuncast.com forward slash survey. All right, here's the show. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warrior, welcome back to another Thursday and another long-form episode here on Suncast. So excited to have you joining us for this episode. In particular, if you are interested in the way the EV infrastructure of our industry is growing and expanding and how some of the key largest companies in the world are thinking about it, stick around. This is going to be a treat for you. I'm delighted to have you join us to be inspired and inform your journey and growth. And hey, if you're new to our tribe, welcome. I hope that you'll find this information helps you enter through the side door and bypass some of the hard-won life lessons from our hundreds of guests. Today's executive entrepreneur, entrepreneur is Giovanni Bertolini from NLX's e-mobility division. And we go down the really interesting uh, pathway of how electrification of the automobile industry is driving adoption of technology, hardware, software, and pulling the renewable energy industry forward in many ways, as well as connecting and tying in what is happening already, as we're seeing in the solar plus storage era, uh, with the storage business. We talk about vehicle to grid, we talk about fleet deployment, but more importantly, and as per usual, we go into the, the, the history of Giovanni moving through his career all the way to recently becoming head of e-mobility for NL as a part of his 10-year stint at that organization. It's a fascinating look into how the electric mobility sector is growing and it's a look from the top, and now arguably the largest renewables uh, provider and probably one of the largest electric vehicle charging providers with more than 60,000 units deployed globally. It's a fun ride, and I hope that you'll stick around even to the end because even his book recommendations are a treat. So get ready. And hey, if you really love these kinds of conversations, then I would encourage you to check out hundreds of additional founder stories and startup advice in the backlog of Suncast. You can find them at mysuncast.com as well as right there in the podcast player you are listening to right now. Don't forget while you're looking at that podcast player to subscribe to the podcast and jump into our website and subscribe to the newsletter so that you won't miss all the goodness that we've got coming at you outside the podcast as well. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here 
on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, we are extending into e-mobility, as many of you have heard on some of our recent episodes, both energy storage, e-mobility, both serve the collective consciousness of how can we achieve a zero or at least low carbon future for our grid? How can we achieve mass penetration of renewables? Well, today I have a real treat for you. Giovanni Bertolini is head of e-mobility for USA and Canada at NLX. I know many of you have friends, as I do, who have moved over to the Italian utility giant in one form or other or are selling to them. Well, today we're going to tease out what's happening in the market from the guy who runs their mobility business. He is focused on growing their resi and commercial smart charging business, and he has been at Anel for quite a long time and serving Anel and others in the utility sector for longer than that. Can't wait to jump into this conversation. So without further ado, welcome Giovanni. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. It's always fun for me to get a chance to jump into uh, or down the rabbit hole, as it were, but into a conversation with someone who has an international understanding and perspective And in particular, you work for a a huge uh, Italian concern that many of us in the industry are very familiar with, uh, the world leader in in renewables, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, adopter or deployer of smart metering technology. And we often follow on Suncast a theme around either entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship. And as I have been thinking about and looking at your your career, it strikes me that you do take on increasing levels of challenges as an entrepreneur to lead sort of new emerging technology to spur your clients on to new and innovative ways. I wonder if there's something we might learn from culturally or uh, just historically about from your past that maybe gives us some insight into this drive for you to always be looking at the cutting edge for your companies. Was there uh, any particular influence in your childhood, uh, be it a hero or a mentor that you kind of want, most wanted to be like, maybe it's you wanted to be a policeman uh, or a farmer or a baker. I don't know. I'm just curious in your youth, what did you aspire to? Well, I don't know if I had a hero, uh, but definitely there were a few role models that I looked at. Uh, I mean, what I, one that I recall fondly was was definitely my, my, my grandfather. He Coming from a family of, of butchers and 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 meat traders, uh, he he started working in banking and he made all his career up, becoming uh, basically the managing director. It was shy of becoming managing director just because he, he didn't have a, a graduate degree, and and this was for a local bank in Sicily uh, back then. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed uh, his stories on how he managed business and how he approached them. Relationship with people. I mean, you know, lending in agricultural Sicily about 70 years ago, uh, it was all about personal relationship, and uh, I found that those aspects very, very fascinating. Wonderful. And growing up in Italy, were you growing up in a rural area? I mean, your grandfather from Sicily, very famous island. Uh, did you grow up in a rural area or more of a metropolitan area? It's a decently small city, about less than probably seventy thousand people on the on the seaside. Uh, but I was there uh, until I was eighteen. Then I moved to Milan uh, and spent there in the next decade, and then uh, and then to Rome, uh, and then uh, I came to the US uh, a few years ago. It was a big change going from from Sicily to 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 to, to Milan, going from the seaside to a landlocked place, but a very formative experience. 
one of the things that I uh, have learned uh, through, again, conversation with you and just exploring a little bit about the work that you've engaged in is uh, at its core, you're an economist. Uh, I think I recall that uh, in graduate school, you studied game theory, which I think is really fascinating when we think about the the very the varying degrees of or matrices of decisions that are being made in real time around us right now with re, with regard to how renewables and uh, e mobility uh, are going to be deployed. I'd really like to understand uh, the perspective of a an Italian born economist executive who worked his way up through McKinsey as a consultant uh, working with utilities. How did you find your way into Anel, and then I, sp- I suppose more importantly. When did the concept of clean energy uh, as a component of the work with Enel become more present? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's an interesting story, I guess. Uh, so, so as as you said, economist by training, I I was actually considering the uh, academic career and doing a master, PhD, and everything. But then, um, good thing I was turned down by some of applications that I did <laughs> to, 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 to a couple of U.S. schools. But I was uh, very happy to to land a job at, at McKinsey, where I spent almost uh, ten years. And there, actually, Enel was, I think, my third client at. at McKinsey. So it's a relationship that goes back to year 2000, engaging uh, also in one of, of something that you mentioned before, the, the program to deploy smart meters. So, so we were doing a, a specific task on, on that uh, program. Yeah, it was 2002. Two early 2002, and, and McKinsey have done many things. Uh, I mean, the, the thing that I most appreciated of that experience is that you really learn a lot. It's a very accelerated grad school, uh, and uh, and you can experience very different uh, settings and and, uh, and and businesses and and segments of business. Uh, and um, I worked in the energy sector, in the financial sector, in in, in other uh, industries, uh, and and really learned a lot about leadership, about uh, um, analytical uh, skills uh, about pyramid thinking and um, a number of skills that uh, I found uh, very useful in the rest of, of my career. Um, but then at the, the later stage of, of my tenure at, at McKinsey, I was uh, again working for, for Enel. Uh, we were helping out uh, Enel um, uh, after they acquired uh, Endesa, the the Spanish, uh, the, the largest Spanish utility, and and getting their inroads into into Spain and Latin America, we were helping them uh, uh, putting together their trading teams, and uh, and in particular within trading, setting up uh, uh, their desk to trade uh, carbon credits. As I was working on that, uh, I was offered a position in Enel to continue helping in that uh, space, uh, but with a focus on. Um, on all the, the policy and regulatory aspects around climate change and and, and carbon regulation, um, that that was not my first let's say approach with uh, those kind of issues because already in McKinsey, I had led for a period of time uh, uh, an internal project to come up with you know trends and long-term view. And this has become something recurrent that, that McKinsey does, giving, you know, what are the, the major trends, uh, big cities, technology, and, and 
scarcity of resources. And that was very, very inspiring to me. At that point, having that opportunity in NL was, uh, was a, a good change of life for me. Uh, I mean, going from the consulting world to the corporate world, uh, very different experience. Uh, but I was with a, with a very professional and, and nice group of people. And, uh, and this first job was, first role in NL was great. I was traveling the world, pitching our view on, on, on climate change, on uh, how to implement market mechanism, create the right incentives uh, to decarbonize uh, at um, you know UNFCC conferences mm-hmm. at European level with the European Union, uh, different think tanks, uh, a great experience. And um, if you want, it goes back to you know my background in economics and game theory. How do we design the right incentives uh, to create uh, a market that could attach a price to those uh, externalities? Uh, and 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 when we talk about uh, clean energy and the whole concept of decarbonization, that is really a main theme. Cracking that uh, issue uh, will help accelerate uh, the transition to to uh, or acceleration of transition to clean technology in, in whatever sector, whether it's the electricity sectors or, or others. And uh, from there, in, uh, in NL, I then moved on covering other roles and had opportunity to beef up, let's say, my, my set of, of, of skills and experiences uh, dealing with the regulation of electricity markets. But then uh, at that point, uh, I, uh, I looked for other opportunities uh, in, the, in the growing space of, um, of clean technology or actually decarbonization services that we can provide. I had a couple of opportunities in my hand, but I, I I decided to 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 join the e-mobility team of of NLX because I found that the strategy there, the value proposition that we have, and the need that there is in the market was extremely appealing. Beyond the electricity sector, the transportation is the second largest contributor to carbon emissions, as well as it contributes local pollutants emissions um, and electrification of transportation can solve those 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 problems at least in part uh, but if you couple that uh, with uh, renewables which can decarbonize the electricity sector you can have at some point a fully decarbonized uh, transportation sector i found that 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 purpose uh, extremely appealing the opportunity and and the the things that uh, we had in house uh, extremely interesting uh, and the challenges I had very stimulating. So uh, at the end of last year, uh, I joined the mobility team and uh, and it's been a, a very interesting ride so far. Giovanni, I love uh, hearing that flow and how even how you were thinking about making the various decisions to accelerate or propel or pivot and move your career. I find, frankly, it's remarkable in today's economy around renewables, that you've been able to stay at Enel for a decade and contribute to multiple business units. I think it speaks to Enel's decision to cultivate talent from within and to move folks around and give them experience and give the organization experience to benefit from uh, your executive skill set and and help uh, new or uh, or even existing as with the thermal uh, unit units grow or or make complex decisions. One of the things that I wanted to clarify that you said, and it sticks out in my mind, you said that it became clear that thermal generation was, or rather you said it became clear that the electricity world was going to decarbonize, i.e. thermal generation was going to need to be 
find it's the end of its useful life and potentially be be decommissioned prior to the end of its useful life. Uh, and how, as you mentioned, how do you optimize that residual life? Can you give me a time frame or a spectrum as to when these discussions internally at NL were happening around, oh, it's becoming clear that electricity is going to decarbonize? Okay, let's try to touch some dates. So I think NL, uh, if I recall, uh, started uh, investing in and in, in developing renewables already around 2006, 2007. Uh, well, even before we had a lot of hydro and we had a lot of geothermal. I mean, NL is, uh, uh, it's probably the, the leading player globally on geothermal is one of the oldest uh, plant uh, uh, around the world. Then we have had significant amount of, uh, of uh, hydro generation. Uh, even, I mean, the first investment out of Italy of NL was actually in the United States uh, in the year 2000 when they acquired a small hydro uh, power plant with about 250 megawatt of 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 of, um, of plants in in the in the northeast, but then uh, after 2007, it's really when that process accelerated. Where where Enel Green Power, which is the renewable arm of Enel, was uh, was created, and and that process um, uh, kicked off, and and uh, it took some uh, a few years to 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 build that set of skills and uh, having, let's say, the cost of the technology coming down enough to really realize that uh, that future that everybody was seeing was was coming up uh, very fast, sooner than later, and that we were building internally those uh, those expertise in, in business development, in execution, in operations uh, that would make us uh, uh, a leader in that in that space, and this was under the leadership of, of Francesco Storace. And and then in 2014, Francesco Storace became the CEO of uh, of Enel, and and that's really when uh, this process accelerated, and it was clear that Enel was going to invest more and more in renewables because that was really the market needed globally, as well as in infrastructure. Because I mean, let's not forget that probably half of the value of of of, of Enel is our networks that serve more than 70 million customers globally. Renewable was going to be the future. And even looking at the different markets, it was clear that uh, that point in which uh, uh, a significant disruption to the market functioning was going to happen where renewables with basically no marginal cost uh, were going to impact in significantly the, the, the prices of the energy, the value of services, the contribution that the different technologies would have on on the mix. So at that point, it's where in 2014, it's where we started looking uh, seriously at, uh, okay, what do we do with the conventional fleet? In this process, uh, we started, first of all, the, the first goal was uh, how do we, I mean, maintaining these assets is expensive. Uh, all these rotating machines, uh, consuming fuels. Uh, the mere operation requires a lot of effort to keep them efficient and available. So the first question was, how do we optimally allocate resources to keep alive what we really need and make sense? But then with the rest, uh, how long are we going to keep them uh, uh, valuable? Also, uh, another challenge that we had was um, was we were very clear that whatever was going to remain active, we wanted to be as clean as possible. 
So regardless of policy or mandates or targets, we internally, we wanted to reduce emissions. We wanted to reduce NOx, SO2, particulate matter, everything. All of that required huge investments. In some cases, uh, actually a few, five years, six years afterwards, I can tell you, we made investments uh, that uh, if we knew that the, the renewable market uh, or the, new, the, the transition to renewable were to be so fast, uh, we might have hold up uh, some of those because um, I mean every year we had we revised our view and 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 we saw this um, huge acceleration and 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 reduction in cost of of renewable energy and yeah indeed I think we we made investments uh, which I, I think it was good that we did but I'm not sure that uh, the the payback of those investments was as we were expecting. Uh, but for sure, they benefited uh, the environment to a large extent. Uh, and now, a few years after that, uh, some of the plans of, uh, of shutting down uh, plants have started. And we have, as I said, every year accelerated on the roadmap uh, of, of closing down those, those power plants to the point that um, recently this year, thermal generation as a business line has disappeared and has been merged with the renewable generation uh, so that we make sure that we have a proper transition from one technology to another. Uh, and that will benefit, of course, our people, but we'll also provide additional opportunities. I mean, now what we're doing is we're standing opportunities to repurpose existing power plants uh, to renewable or maybe to storage or ways to support the grid. Yeah, I'm glad that you referenced the CEO, uh, Starachi, he's been, you know, sort of groomed into the CEO position vis-a-vis uh, having had a, a dramatic influence in the green power business. And what an amazing statement to the rest of the utility world that Anel now, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, a leader in uh, renewable power, uh, perhaps the largest in the world in renewables, is being led by one of the key figures to, to make that happen. And, uh, you know, that seed of, uh, of sustainability of renewables being the inevitability of our, of our industry is, is firmly planted from, uh, from the leadership on down, you know, that, that's super encouraging. It's one of the things I've always really, uh, appreciated and enjoyed about. I think NL it's, it's a very purpose driven organization. I mean, we strongly believe our, our mission, our purpose, and it's not just NL green power with their, uh, very bold objectives in 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 deploying uh, renewable energy, but that's that's very true, also for 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 NLX, uh, which has really at its core the ambition to help our clients uh, make a, a better use of 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 energy and uh, and and use uh, cleaner cleaner energy as much as possible, and and that's not just uh, for the electric usages, but uh, also electrifying other energy usages like like mobility. That's very inspiring. Well, to do that as well, you've got a big ask, a big lift in the marketplace where not only are utility executives being hemmed in on all sides <laughs> across many different sectors of the way their revenue works, the way their business model works, and now utilities are being forced to reckon with the reality that parts of their revenue may in fact be, be derived from from their ability to service the electrification of the automobile industry, uh, which itself is extremely complex. In the context that as a consultant and now as an executive at one of the world's leading utilities, your role is to help convince other utilities to come along <laughs> on the journey. What Are there any particular 
tools or resources in your experience that have helped you with that stakeholder engagement uh, and really helping get the needed buy-in at the utility level to deploy not only your tech, but the concept that this is an inevitable uh, reality for your your industry colleagues. If you want it easier with 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 mobility, then it's been in the past uh, with um, uh, with the transition to to clean energy. I think uh, uh, in in the past, uh, uh, I mean, the, the concept of transition to clean energy was uh, was seen uh, from many utilities as a challenge to their status quo, to their way of doing business. And I recall that uh, when we were having conversation on how do we reform the European trading scheme, uh, emission trading scheme, to 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 make it effective, or how do we push certain approaches to 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 push for decarbonization? I mean, not everybody was on board, even within the electricity sector. When it comes instead to electrification of transportation, I think utilities are looking at that uh, with, with great interest, all of them. If you think about it in a very opportunistic way from, from the utility perspective, uh, electrifying transportation is additional electrons flowing through the grid. It's additional demand. It's additional sales. So if you want, it's a win for, for utilities. But that comes with challenges. And uh, as well as uh, not all utilities are are. Uh, uh, ready to that, or or uh, ready to invest uh, into into supporting that that transition. We we felt that uh, beyond being an opportunity is 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 a duty for us, uh, helping decarbonize the transportation uh, sector, and we want to do so by providing solutions that uh, can help the users, the drivers, go around. Uh, with, with peace of mind, having their cars charged or having the opportunity to charge along the way. And, um, and from the utility perspective, which we are in, 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 in several countries, doing it in a way that is compatible or, or can be accommodated easily with the required uh, investments and upgrades into the infrastructure. And we try to capture that with the concept of, of smart charging. Or and, and and vehicle to grid integration, in the United States uh, we're not a utility. We provide our solutions, and we're not the only one. But I feel that our solution is uh, has been uh, very attractive to utilities because I mean we're working with more than thirty utilities in in the United States, uh, helping. Uh, materialize their programs to uh, support electrification of of their customers in their service territory. One of the things that I've been observing and certainly through getting to know more of the work that you're doing with the e-mobility sector and helping consumers and utilities alike uh, with the hardware and software that you're deploying is that there's a huge opportunity, especially in the wake of COVID-19, to embrace the work that is uh, that is before us, the mobility, electrification of the uh, transportation sector, decarbonization of the grid, as an overall accelerator for the energy transition. The CEO, as you mentioned, Strachi, was quoted, I think right at the beginning or around the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, that renewables can lead the economic kickstart after coronavirus. How does that messaging tie in to low carbon future? And in particular, does what we're seeing around this economic crisis and the pandemic create a, a, a pocket for us, a vacuum that we can fill with regard to this conversation of integration and decarbonization, how the transportation and energy sectors can lead? Well, I think COVID-19, uh, apart from all the challenges that has created to to people jobs and, and 
companies' investments and and which has been reflected also, and in the mobility sector because you know slowdown in sales and 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 postponement of um, uh, purchases of, of of charging infrastructure and 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 electric cars. A part of the all the the challenges that has created to the industry, uh, it has uh, provided also a glimpse uh, of what uh, a, a cleaner environment could benefit us all, especially in very polluted uh, locations. I mean, it was very evident in China. It was extremely evident in in in, in the northern Italy. The shelter in place, the lockdown. Uh, with a sharp reduction in industrial activity, but especially in transportation, has shown how much actually we are polluting our streets, our cities with uh, conventional cars. And people are realizing that. Uh, and um, if you combine that with the fact that um, electric cars are becoming more and more affordable and there is a greater choice and there will be even more choice in the future, I believe that uh, these might increase uh, the, the the propensity of, of people to uh, invest into into an electric car I, I think there are different drivers for for people uh, wanting to to choose an electric car I think there are people who are sensitive to the to the fun factor uh, I think it's way more fun to drive an electric car if you if you love the acceleration and the very low center of gravity other people will be moved by the economic consideration because I mean if you start crunching the numbers. It's true that uh, uh, e-vehicle might cost a bit more upfront, but you're going to save over time in maintenance and 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 and, and cost per mile. Uh, but then another driver will be, uh, I mean, feeling that we are fulfilling a purpose, that we're helping the environment. And, and that sensitivity to the latter piece, I think, has increased due to to COVID. And we've seen already in the numbers that the sales of electric vehicles has not gone down as much as the rest of, of vehicles. Um, and, and I think that uh, could be a sign, will be a sign that there will be an acceleration, uh, even faster acceleration. So while before COVID, we were hoping that 2020 was going to be the year of transition, I would bet now on 2021. Well, as we think about that transition and your recent sort of move into leading this e-mobility uh, charge, for lack of a better word, uh, of an L in the United States. Uh, one of the very, sort of the tip of the spear, as it were, for an L uh, is leveraging the storehouse of knowledge you have around, throwing too many puns around, around charging. Uh, and I think that there is a, a common refrain in the industry, it's sort of chicken and egg, we won't have more EV adoption until we have better charging. We won't have better charging until we have more EV adoption. How is Anel working to spur the interest, uh, the innovation, and the adoption of EV charging as a way to provide the infrastructure necessary for the boom that you just mentioned we expect in 2021? The chicken and egg uh, problem is is there. Uh, I mean, major concern so far has been uh, the range anxiety, uh, the ability to. I mean, how your experience as a driver would change from a, a gasoline, a petrol car to an, an electric car. So Enel has been tackling that issue in, in different ways, uh, and and um, depending on our. On two drivers, first of all, one uh, our role at presence in in the different countries where we operate, and then also depending on the different uh, patterns 
uh, that we see in, in different countries. I mean, if I compare Europe and uh, and the United States, there are there are some some key differences. Uh, policies are, are, if you want, are similar uh, in in certain sense, but um, and and policies have been helpful in uh, in pushing adoption uh, with the. Tax rebates and zero emission uh, policies, uh, programs in states. But then uh, the the adoption of uh, of uh, electric cars and, and chargers has been simplified, if you want, by the fact that um, most of uh, houses in the US or many many households have individual houses, so they have a place where they can actually charge their car every night easily. And it's pretty straightforward to add the charger in your garage. It's um, it's a small investment with your electrician and, and the chargers are, are, are decently cheap. And with that, uh, every morning you have a fully charged car. Which is even better than driving a petrol car. That I mean, once a week, uh, I mean, you get into the car, you need to go to office, and realize that you are low on fuel. And say, oh, I need to stop to fuel the car. And and while of course, uh, uh, fueling a car with 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 gasoline is a pretty fast, it's it's still uh, something that you need to take care of. If you're using your car just for regular commuting, if you have the opportunity to charge at home, you'll never think about charging. It will be as straightforward as plugging your phone every night, uh, which which I guess everybody does. So there in the United States, uh, our objective, our goal was to make uh, an affordable charger, easy to install, easy to use, uh, which in addition to that could help uh, drive behaviors and create value for our customers or uh, our utilities. Um, so we have created this uh, smart charging concept uh, and which we can talk more in details afterwards if you want, that uh, has helped accelerate or we think it's helping accelerating the adoption of, of EVs. And we had a very strong focus on the residential market uh, because, as I said, about 80% of charging happens at home. And now we're moving more and more towards the commercial space because we feel that more and more CNI enterprises, uh, real estate investors will start uh, adding uh, um, um, charging uh, options uh, to support their employees or their customers. In other countries, uh, the, the story is different. In uh, in Europe, especially in Southern Europe, uh, where Enel is, is present, like Italy and Spain, the majority of housing is multi-unit dwellings. Uh, and oftentimes, people don't even have uh, an, an assigned parking space, uh, and they need to park on the car, uh, on the street, uh, along along the curb. So, so there, our effort has been focused more on uh, uh, deploying public charging infrastructure, trying to be ubiquitous. I mean, we're going to add, uh, I don't recall exactly the numbers because uh, uh, I, I don't review those being not being my, my countries of interest, but I think we're deploying uh, more than 20,000 chargers uh, over the next few years. And uh, we already have several, uh, more than 10,000, I guess, or yeah, maybe that the numbers will 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 cut them out. Let me say it again. We're going to deploy thousands of, of public chargers in uh, in Italy and Spain to help uh, our drivers uh, have charging options everywhere as well as of course we are providing chargers for the home but as i say there is a, a slightly smaller space uh, there is that approach similar to how in north carolina for example where i live in in raleigh durham duke energy has chargers level 2 chargers 
strategically placed in community centers, a museum, a parking garage, etc. For the most part, they're free. One presumes that in the future, they won't necessarily be free. Are the deployments you're doing similar to that? Yeah, it's a similar deployment. So we're deploying charges along the streets and shopping malls uh, in uh, places where, where people might stop for, for a few hours. Some of those have been free so far. Now uh, we have started, uh, we're going to start charging for those. But for instance, we're uh, implementing uh, plans. So you can play, you can you can pay um, a monthly fee. Oh, so like cell phones. <laughs> yes, uh, you can pay a monthly fee and then you can charge uh, wherever and you have a certain amount of uh, electricity included in that uh, in that rate. And then you can choose, uh, depending on your, on your mileage, uh, what's the most appropriate uh, plan for you. wonder underlying the uh, move from, char- from free to charging, are you building that technology in-house or is that in partnership with someone like ChargePoint or EVgo or some European equivalent? No, ChargePoint and EVgo are our uh, competitors. Of course, uh, when it comes to to public charging, um, the entire industry is going towards uh, interoperability agreements. So the idea is that uh, everyone has his own network, uh, but then we let... uh, customers of other networks uh, getting into uh, each other networks uh, because we want to provide access to people, right? So, and if people is... um, is happy to use uh, uh, somebody else's uh, uh, app or, or 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 workflow or process to charge, but they want to charge to our places. We're gonna provide that uh, opportunity and and vice versa. When it comes to to our chargers, uh, we have uh, a lineup of products. Uh, um, covering um, more or less all different needs of residential and and commercial or public uh, infrastructure. Some of those uh, are developed in house, so we do have uh, the development capabilities on hardware and software for the charging infrastructure, in particular on the AC, but also so level two chargers, but also some DC, and and for high for other. Uh, high power chargers or DC fast chargers. For some of those, we rely on on third party hardware that uh, we have integrated with our software platform, our IoT platform, and uh, our smart charging suite. So they have become integral part of the NLX lineup. Is anyone building the middleware layer? Like, who's building the payment platform, for example, that the charging infrastructure uh, interfaces with? So for the time being, uh, uh, we are using uh, third-party solutions uh, for the for the payment uh, system. So the the acquirer technology is uh, is from a third party. We usually are merchant of record, uh, and that integrates with our uh, Juiznet uh, platform, which is the the, the software that drives. Mm-hmm. Uh, all our chargers. Uh, NLHex uh, also has, uh, however, in Italy, and but it's it's something that we're going to expand. We have uh, a product line which is focused on on payment uh, solutions. So in Italy, we we can provide uh, uh, the entire suite of services for processing payments uh, from prepaid cards, uh, debit cards, and and uh, and um, uh, processing terminals and and everything. Yes. Let's talk about JuiceNet because we talked a bit about the, uh, you know, Enel being uh, the first to deploy at scale smart 
metering technology. You were a part of the McKinsey team that incentivized and them in, in, with research to be able to take that bold move. JuiceNet is something that fascinates me, and it ties into this I, the concept of smart charging that you presented a little bit earlier. And it also would allow us to highlight one of the projects that you guys have ongoing in California in particular that I think aggregates to something like 40 megawatts of capacity. How does the the public charging infrastructure or even just the even the private charging infrastructure that you're currently deploying allow for future proofing and flexibility of this infrastructure as technology grows as our policies and uh, system interoperability capacity and v- vehicle to grid change can you help us understand JuiceNet a little better what we can imagine to be the business models that can overlay ev infrastructure moving forward so let's start with with, with few details. I mean, in, in the United States, uh, we have about 60,000 chargers deployed. Globally, uh, I think we are over 80,000 already. All these chargers uh, connected, so they will connect uh, through Wi-Fi, or uh, some of those have also cellular connectivity. They will connect to our IoT platform. And, uh, and then the IoT platform uh, will talk with our core software, which is what we call JuiceNet, uh, which is our uh, operating system for EV charging. Uh, what what JuiceNet does, it, it collects uh, all the information from the chargers. So, so we have uh, the metering information from the chargers. We have uh, uh, all uh, data which uh, might be relevant to the to the customers. So the customers can review in, uh, in the app or in the dashboard all the charging activities, uh, can get an estimate of uh, how much uh, does it cost to drive an electric vehicle and things like that. Uh, but uh, we can also provide that information to utilities so that utilities can inform their programs to support uh, electric charging. But it's not only that. I mean, the smart piece of that is the fact that uh, the software can control the chargers and can leverage the flexibility of the charger as a provider of demand response, basically. What does that mean? Let's say that you're charging your car when you get home, let's say at 7 p.m., and you know that you're going to need your car next morning, 7 a.m. So your car will be parked for 12 hours and connected to the charger, but it doesn't need 12 hours to charge. With our level two chargers, I mean, depending on the car and depending on how much you need to top off your batteries, it might need, uh, I don't know, two, three hours, four hours to charge. And those two, three, four hours within a range of 12 hours, it gives you a lot of flexibility because you can move that charging around and uh, and moving by moving around you can help uh, the grid or the utility to ease the load on the grid basically doing load shifting and uh, reducing uh, consumption at the peak and and what we're doing is we are enabling the monetization, the creation of value through that service. So we're working with utilities to provide them demand response service. And in California in particular, where there is the dirt market where we can participate to that, we are aggregating about almost 30,000 chargers in California. We're aggregating those, I think the last numbers I recall is 66 megawatt of, of load, which behaves as a sort of virtual battery. And in the peak hours, we can receive signals from uh, Kaiso to curtail uh, load, and then we can reduce uh, the charging of those of those charges in California. 
and uh, that creates value. And then uh, we give back uh, that value to our customers through a program which is called Juice Point, uh, which translates into actual dollars. And that uh, becomes, an, uh, of course, an incentive uh, for our customers to connect their cars, because the more they connect the car, the more we can leverage that, uh, that flexibility. This is an extremely interesting concept, because if you think about it, mobility, um, I mean, there, are, there is a lot of discussions around how the grid will cope with all these electric vehicles, creating all this load, all this peak. Uh, I mean, what will be the investments on upgrading the grid? But if you think about it, the grid, it is sized for the current peak consumption, actually, the consumption of a few years ago now with all the solar, we know the duck curve in California, all the stuff with it, our listeners are all very familiar with. The grid is already sized for, for the peak and more than that. But for, for most time of the day, it is used not even close to the peak for, for, for a much smaller percentage. So if you have chargers everywhere at home, at the working place, and you can hooked your car to the charger almost all the time you can charge whenever is 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 cheaper or and uh, and or there is capacity on the grid and and then let's assume that being cheaper and having capacity available will go hand in hand i mean with the proper pricing mechanism and incentives uh, that's really the direction in that way you can add uh, a large percentage of electric vehicles with a marginal minimal impact to the to the grid of course if you go into towards a model in which people will only charge uh, like they're now fueling their car at the, at the gasoline station and they want to charge in 20 minutes in that case you need a lot of power to be delivered in those places to be delivered in a very small amount of time and people will not give you back that flexibility will not be willing to say oh no i can okay i can charge it in one hour instead of 20 minutes. I mean, they're on the go. So that model gives back very little flexibility to, to the grid. A model in which you have chargers almost ubiquitous and, and electric cars all the time connected uh, can make for a very compatible or, or feasible electrification. And that will help also a lot uh, with uh, integrating more renewables. The more renewable we deploy to the grid, the more we're going to face the issue of unbalance between demand and supply. That's why I was working on storage, because storage is one solution to that uh, to that issue. Uh, it can absorb a lot of solar power uh, midday and then release it back at night. But if we're electrifying, electrifying transportation, if we could charge those cars during the day, that we can absorb more and more energy coming from solar. Today, as I said, 80% of charging happens at night, and that is mostly, sorry, 80% of charging happens at home, but that is mostly at night. If we can have also chargers at the workplace or where people go during the day, then we can have a more evenly spread demand that can help fostering greater adoption of renewable. Hey, for my commercial solar warriors out there, do you sometimes feel like prospects are treating you like a dollar per watt commodity? Instead of a race to the bottom, why not add more value to your proposals by including DemandX load flexibility software from Extensible Energy? You can use intelligent AI software to monitor solar production and shift the usage patterns of HVAC and other flexible loads. The result is increased savings on energy charges, demand charges, time of use charges, and that makes you and your proposal stand out from the crowd. Who doesn't want that? 
You can learn all about DemandX and how you can include load flexibility software as part of your proposals at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And as a bonus, you'll get free load flexibility analysis, sales training, and info on how you can even white label DemandX for your solar company. So go ahead, stand out with DemandX from Extensible Energy. This virtual power plant concept that you guys are managing is, for me, the most near-term noble truth about how we can be uh, incentivizing folks to build uh, EV charging infrastructure even uh, before we have uh, proliferation of electric vehicles. This is the very first level of vehicle grid integration, and this is available today, now. The next level is uh, uh, what is usually referred to as, as V2G where the two stands for, for bidirectional, that uh, would enable additional services like uh, giving back, uh, based on the concept of giving back energy to the grid from the battery of your car. And that could enable uh, arbitrage, uh, load shifting, uh, peak shaving, as well as uh, provision of uh, um, uh, ancillary services like frequency regulation. That uh, has some challenges. I mean, we have piloted this technology extensively, and, uh, and the technology is there. It's it's a bit expensive. Uh, it's definitely a bit more complicated uh, that um, uh, that what uh, we're using for for V1G for the vehicle grid integration we're doing now. Uh, but the challenge there is that the market is not ripe for that. You need uh, vehicles that can support that. Uh, that have uh, batteries that uh, are supporting that. You need to have a car manufacturer who will provide you a warranty that covers that usage as well. You need to have drivers who are willing to have someone uh, using their batteries to provide that that service. And then you need to have uh, the right uh, market settings, the right regulation and mechanism in place uh, to to benefit from, from that. I think it will come for sure. I don't think it will be tomorrow. It takes a bit longer. One one area where, however, I believe that uh, is uh, is readily available is uh, with um, with with public transportation. In in NLX, we're very much focused on uh, electrifying public transportation as well. And when I say public transportation, is uh, is of course transit buses, where we have already deployed hundreds of buses in Latin America. And the uh, U.S. is a market that we definitely want to be part of. But in the U.S., it's very interesting, uh, uh, the space that there is uh, with school buses. School buses, if you think about it, they run in the morning, they run in the afternoon, uh, but then for the rest of the day, they're mostly idle. And each bus has a very large battery pack. It's uh, three times uh, a Model 3, the battery pack of, of an electric bus, at least. So you will have those buses... Uh, sitting idle four hours in the morning, the rest of the afternoon and the night, uh, those are the ideal candidate to start deploying uh, V2G. And, and that's an area that we're looking with great attention as well. Yeah, and it's a it's an area that is really exciting right now with with uh, some of the developments from Proterra and others, BYD, obviously big uh, two companies that are really leaning heavily into electrification of uh, public fleets and uh, public transport and in particular school buses. Um, the charging infrastructure that you mentioned has been focused on Resi and you said you're moving into commercial. Where within the construct uh, of, um, of commercial deployment or commercial fleet deployment does your technology sit outside of 
fleet management for municipalities and schools. Is there another angle as well in the in the CNI space, uh, office buildings and? We want to serve all different segments. I mean, we're talking of uh, multi-unit dwellings. We're talking of uh, workplaces. We're con- talking of. Uh, uh, parking operators, uh, um, hospitals, universities, so the entire MASH segment. Uh, We we see that uh, uh, the more uh, electric vehicles are are becoming a common place to find them around, the more all these segments will uh, find uh, uh, attractive to offer charging infrastructure either for pay or for free to fulfill the needs of their employees or or, or better serve their their customers i mean to give you an example i was talking with a colleague of mine working in, in norway uh, a couple of days ago so as you know in norway now more than 50% of of new say, car sales are electric uh, probably the number is even higher more recently and 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 there already i mean when, when you enter a, a parking lot uh, um, in the united states uh, there is always an area for EV charging there are maybe 6, six 12 uh, 20 spots uh, which are enabled in uh, in norway it's like Two, three floors of a, of a, of a multi-floor parking lots are for electric vehicles. That's that's the level of penetration that they have, and and this is going to happen here as well. And um, we need to be ready for that. So we are going to have, uh, and when I say going to have, it's it's because uh, some of our products targeted to commercial space will be available in Q3, like cellular connectivity uh, for the for the wall-mounted boxes. We're going to have solutions uh, for that space, but uh, even there, we can add uh, those, uh, those, those smart charging solutions, which can work at local level through the cloud. So, if you're deploying tens of, of chargers, uh, you might want to think about uh, what will be the impact on uh, on your electricity connection. Do you need to upgrade? So in some cases, uh, you might avoid that by simply implementing load balancing between the chargers. So you, you can oversize the capacity of the chargers versus your electrical connection because you know that there is an algorithm that can safely allocate the capacity. So if every charger is used, then maybe the capacity is lower. If only few are used, then they can run a full a full capacity. And um, and then we have uh, solutions for, for those parking operators or, or commercials uh, or the building owners, uh, property managers, to, to manage their chargers. Uh, do they want to give it for free? Do they want to make it pay? Do they want to pay ma- more in the morning and then in the late, in the, in the, in the afternoon? So, so we have a number of, of solutions to uh, allow uh, the complete management of, um, of the charging infrastructure. Then another segment that we're looking at extreme, uh, with, because it's, it's coming as well, is, is fleet. I mean, you mentioned fleet. So electrification of fleet uh, is going to require the dedicated infrastructure uh, as well. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of verticals that you could approach, right? And some of your contemporaries uh, on the uh, liquid fuel side, namely Shell, having acquired Green Lots, is one that comes to mind, are going after similar markets. As we sort of back uh, back out to maybe thirty thousand foot level, as an executive, how do you think about how you will deploy? the relatively limited resources and time, which is the only truly non-renewable resource you and your team have, how do you think about deploying your team, deploying your resources to address the right market to help scale with NL and to own a piece of the market rather than try to be ubiquitous? 
We we are working uh, successfully with with partners. We are uh, building a network of partners, uh, which are which are leaders in specific verticals uh, or in specific geographies, and uh, we're working with them and making our solutions available to them for their customers and supporting their customer acquisition processes and and the deployment of our charging solutions and in that way we are expanding our ability to to reach out to, to more and more customers while we are we are trying to deal more directly uh, with, with with large enterprise or other customers that uh, maybe are already customers of NLX for our other product lines like uh, you know NLX is uh, North America's leader in demand response uh, we have thousands of customers there uh, through EGP we have a number of corporate customers who buy our renewable energy coming from our power plants so so those segments is, is is more direct and partners is is the way that we're finding uh, very successful. It's fascinating to think about the moving parts of a giant company like Enel and NLX and now a division of NLX that is e-mobility. So it's really you know it's really helpful from the vantage point of the person responsible for leading that uh, division to see where you're spending your effort and time vis-a-vis the things that you have have discussed with us here uh, through this conversation. I've had a ton of, I would say, light bulb moments here in this conversation. And speaking of light bulb moments, oftentimes uh, I like to ask about lessons learned or takeaways from the career that you have been so engaged in. Are there mentors or leaders in your career that have left an indelible mark on you that maybe they've taught you some lesson that you hand down to your team or to your children even uh, that you'd be willing to share with us well i i've worked with 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 many different people i mean in mckinsey basically every three six months you change leadership and in in nl i've I've covered very different roles and and from every individual with um work with and I must say I uh, always appreciated and, and respected all of them, uh, or almost every uh, every one of them. I have learned something, but the the, the key things that uh, that I've learned, uh, um, especially from from my consulting time, and uh, and and I believe it's a it's a treat of uh, it's it's a it's a clear trait of of the way I I lead my team, is uh, I, I tend to be very very analytical. I like to to flip every stone. I like to um, ask a lot of why not, uh, uh, challenging everything that looks like conventional wisdom. I mean, for me, it's always about is there is there a different way to think about it? It's uh, may, maybe posing questions that might look uh, weird, but I found that uh, productive. And then um, uh, bringing experiences and similarities from very different sectors and uh, or experiences, and 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 see if they can provide a different angle to to face such such a problem. I learned a lot about that. And I mean, this was probably the most peculiar project that I did when I was in, in McKinsey. As I said, I'm an economist by training, uh, did mostly either banking or energy sector. But at, at some point, I, I was working on, on the design to cost of a military plane, nothing to do with my background. And the goal was to reduce by 30% the cost of that plane. And 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 we did it. I mean, I was I was actually working 
night and day with with the team of engineers and and, and, and at some point they thought that was engineer as well uh, because they went to such level of, of detail and challenging that uh, I, mean, I mean we had a blast that that was a great experience uh, which uh, make me learn a lot and and that's the same approach that I'm bringing now I'm, I have uh, as you've seen I have no background in software I have very limited background in hardware but I really enjoy my conversation with the technical team and learning uh, all what we can do and trying to push the boundaries to do even more in that space. In this experience now with with e-mobility, where you know this this is this is a fantastic team. It has a lot of experience already. We have people who come with with very strong background, uh, who over the last couple of years have joined this uh, small startup, which was eMotorworks that Enel acquired a couple of years ago. Uh, so we still have that entrepreneurial uh, garage mentality, and now transitioning into a big corporation. And, and scaling up our business and uh, and and building robust solutions, uh, improving our operations, our marketing and sales. There is so much to do, and um, it's it's it's. I've been learning a lot uh, in in areas which were not in my let's say that hadn't seen in my previous experiences. Yes, in my wheelhouse. Thank you. It's been extremely productive so far. Uh, at least personally speaking, for me, it's been great. And the business and, and the strategy that we have, it's 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 very clear, and and I think we are in the right direction. You know, I see the work that you've done, and you're exactly the kind of mentor that I would have loved to have had in my life in my 20s, 30s, even now. So I'm grateful to be able to spend any time with you, and I'm sure that uh, those who are listening in are as well. To that end, I wonder what advice you might have for. Someone who's considering a career move to clean tech or clean energy, maybe they're looking directly at uh, e-mobility as my friend uh, Joey is doing right now. He's probably listening to this. Uh, How should one think about these opportunities, where to start and what skills are in demand? I think clean energy, clean tech is is a fascinating place. Uh, I mean, it's it's definitely a a big grow area. I mean, I have no doubt that this will grow exponentially and uh, there are so many niches and segments uh, from that that can be tackled what makes me passionate for that is is the fact that beyond beyond being uh, a, a, an area where you can do something fun that you can uh, learn something useful it gets back uh, to giving you a greater sense of, of purpose where you can really fulfill a passion. I mean, this connection to health of our planet or the environment of our cities and what this technology and what technology can bring to help and improve the way of, of living uh, and, and the way we, we do everything. I mean, if, if you think about it, we are using energy in every aspect of our life. And being able to, to foster and, and, and push solutions that can make that cleaner, I think it's, uh, it's, it's very fulfilling. So if, if someone has a passion for that, uh, I, I, I really encourage to explore an opportunity in, in, in clean energy or clean tech. Um, there are many, many roles uh, that uh, you can start with. I mean, there is a lot of space in hardware and software because at the backbone of this, uh, there's technology. So uh, 
It's, it's, I mean, if I were an engineer, I would really start there, it, whether it's EVs uh, or chemistry for, for batteries or, or mechanical uh, pieces for, for wind turbines. I mean, there are so many areas to, to explore and learn and grow, as well as with software. Software is a, is a key component. I mean, the more and more this technology will need to be intelligent we'll need to have uh, uh, the, the capabilities to, to 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 learn and optimize uh, and uh, whether it's preventive maintenance where it is uh, smart charging there is a huge space for improving uh, the way we understand and manage uh, the production delivery and usage of, uh, of of energy and and then there is an entire other space which is how do we make this technology available and appealing or customers, decision makers, uh, business development, marketing, sales. I mean, where we are, when you're fighting with, uh, you know, conventional wisdom, with ingrained experiences, and, and you need to bring something new, that's a big challenge. And, and that's an area uh, where, where we're always looking for, for bright minds and, 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 and motivated people to, to push the thinking and the execution uh, forward as well. And of course, I, I shall not forget uh, how to make all of these cheaper. So, I mean, and, and you've seen, for instance, I mean, if you think about Tesla, Tesla had a huge idea, a great technology, a great marketing and sales. I mean, everybody wants a Tesla now. Uh, how do you make it uh, cheap enough uh, and of good quality enough? So operations and execution is, is key as well. It's really interesting. I look at two sides of the market for folks that would want to get into clean energy. It's those who uh, we have the opportunity to extend not only an olive branch, but a bridge between oil and gas and clean energy on the one hand, which traditionally is becoming because, because it's an older technology, more established. The folks who have really core understanding of the way this market moves, the way power works, and who would be looking for advanced roles in our industry are seasoned executives that could easily lead some of these startups through the dramatic growth they're going to experience. But some of the embedded startups have a problem with letting an oil and gas person be involved in leadership. Uh, somehow it's tainted. Uh, I don't know uh, if that resonates with everyone, but I also think of that on the one hand, how do we, how do we help those folks uh, identify the right role, the right fit for them? Because uh, as you pointed out, Anel is, is doing away with uh, 40 gigawatts of thermal generation folks that were doing O&M as well as folks that were running those plants are now looking for new opportunities and uh, we should be welcoming them, welcoming them with open arms. Uh, the other as a category in a class that really resonates with what you said about finding a career that fulfills a passion is the entire generation known as millennials, that connection to the health of the planet, a purpose with your work, regardless of your, of your pay is something that I hope that over the coming you know, three to five years, we can begin seeing as many data scientists and software engineers uh, from Stanford, Harvard, uh, and other great schools going into clean energy as they are go rushing to face to the, to the fangs of the world uh, for, their, uh, for their satisfaction as well as their income. And I believe that that ability for us as an industry to uh, really speak to that need for fulfilling a passion is in particular a motivating factor for the millennials. Although I've had a number of conversations with folks in their late 30s to early 50s recently who are looking to transition from other industries, namely oil and gas. They're looking to do so because of a cry of consciousness, as it were, uh, that they want to be able to contribute 
uh, and certainly in uh, what, what remains of their career, the, the coming 20, 30 years, they want to be able to say they left a legacy, they left uh, a mark on something that was meaningful. All of those things, how you outlined that role by role, I really, really appreciate that. Giovanni, I like to say that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. And I wonder if that is true for you. And if it is, is there a book or two that perhaps you would recommend or that you gift the most? And, and what, why are they meaningful for you? The kind of books that I like uh, are, are biographies, I like uh, biographies on, on, on leadership. Some of those have been very, if not inspiring, very, very telling uh, for me. Uh, I mean, think about um, Steve Jobs. I've, I've read a few biographies on him. But apart from that, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there is one book that I'm reading now, which if, if you want is a biography. I mean, it's, 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 it's in a novel format because it tells about the story of uh, a family of entrepreneurs uh, in um, 1800s. Who basically built uh, an, an economic empire in Sicily? So it goes back a bit to my to my roots. I know it's been recently translated in English. It's called the Florio of Sicily, and um, it's this family, a very poor family of merchants, became uh, probably the richest family in Italy at the at the end of uh, of uh, 1900th. Uh, they invented, uh, for instance, the canned tuna uh, in olive oil. They are the, you know, the uh, Marsala uh, liquor uh, from Florida is the, is the best renowned. And, and what I found fascinating about this book, which I said, I mean, it's a bit of a novel because, of course, you, you don't know, you don't have all these details of that time. What I found fascinating are really the way uh, they, they uh, invested and embarked in new ventures and how they learned from their travels to, to, to Britain, to Great Britain and other places. And they brought so many new thinking and new ways of doing things uh, to, to Sicily, which at that time was more of a, of a feudal, uh, you know, all barons and counts, uh, noblemen and very poor people. And they brought this huge wave of change uh, to that place. Uh, so I, I, I found this, uh, this pretty uh, inspiring as a, as a story of uh, always bringing new thinking, always bringing, uh, uh, challenging the existing way of doing things. Uh, and, and pushing for more. Giovanni, I think that the Florios and uh, many other Italians are no doubt proud of the work that you and others representing the Enel organization are doing around the world, <laughs> exporting Italian ingenuity and, th and creativity and certainly deep, uh, long-standing excellence in engineering. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to hear uh, how you're thinking about solving this problem alongside the rest of us. Where can folks who would like to lean in more, learn more about the e-mobility group or you personally find you and your team? So if people are interested uh, on, on our solutions for e-mobility, they can definitely visit uh, our website, which is evcharging.nlx.com, where they can learn everything about our juice box, which is our charger and uh, all our other products and, and solutions that we can offer. And there are a number of uh, use cases for utilities and, and things. We also have uh, a Twitter channel and uh, um, for our product. And if people want to reach to me personally, I mean, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter. I'll be interested in, 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 in learning uh, any thoughts, suggestions, or questions that our listeners might have after this conversation. We'll certainly give them the opportunity, as we always do, prompt them 
to leave their thoughts, uh, suggestions, or comments on uh, a LinkedIn post that I'll be creating for this episode. And I'm sure more than uh, more than one will reach out. Uh, thank you for graciously providing those ways for folks to connect. Well, let's end, Giovanni, today's conversation, as we always do, with what I call a bold prediction. Is there something that perhaps you and your team see happening in the market that maybe others aren't tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I mean, I, I truly believe that uh, electrification of, uh, of of transportation, no, no, not only uh, transportation. I mean, there are so many energy uses where electricity is uh, is the most efficient way to to deliver those needs. Uh, so this is going to happen, and this is uh, if I look back at the last ten years, uh, I'm sure that this is going to happen faster than people are currently expecting. There, the question is, uh, how do we make sure that uh, it happens uh, in the best possible way, in in a way that enables uh, drivers, uh, that enables companies, uh, that enables utilities, um, and uh, and then the grid operators, and uh, and policymakers, and regulators, uh, with the right uh, understanding uh, uh, of the solutions that are available have a smooth uh, uh, transition towards uh, an electrification of, uh, of transportation and in general of other energy uses. That, that, that's really our, our goal to help that, uh, that process. I know that many others are, are doing the same, but I feel that the uh, majority of, of, of the public and policymakers as well uh, might not yet uh, uh, understand the speed at which this will happen. Well, it is happening uh, ever, ever faster. And we'll certainly be watching with bated breath here on Suncast as we uh, seek to understand how this all is going to play out. Giovanni Bertolini is head of e-mobility for USA and Canada for NLX. And uh, we have had the distinct pleasure of spending time with him here on Suncast today. Giovanni, I hope that we get a chance to chat again soon. And I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Nico. It's been a pleasure for me as well. All right, Warriors. Well, there you have it. I hope that you've learned, as I have, more about how the electric vehicle industry is growing and what the infrastructure needs are. I was so grateful to Giovanni for the ways that he expounded on the different roles that are still in high demand and the ways that we really genuinely need people from all walks of life, in particular data scientists, engineers, chemical engineers, etc., to help us push this endeavor forward. I hope that you feel more prepared than ever to take on this energy transition. And I am sure that you are getting a ton of value out of this conversation. Would you hop over to LinkedIn, find my most recent post, and leave a comment? That would be amazing, and it would let Giovanni and I know what you learned, what you liked, what you didn't like. And hey, if you share it with your friends and family, I'm both humbled and honored. It certainly helps us become more discoverable. And if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this discussion and every discussion, along with the social media links and that book recommendation I mentioned over at the blog at mysuncast.com. While you're there, please take a couple of minutes out of your precious time to give us your feedback in our listener survey. I read every answer, and it really helps us think about how to better serve you. That's at mysuncast.com. And lastly, if you're a newbie to the industry, 
then I really highly encourage you to join our free Facebook group, The Energy Guild. We've got free goodies, guides, trainings, and mentorship from hundreds of clean energy professionals. So get access at facebook.com forward slash The Energy Guild. I think if you go to groups and search The Energy Guild, you'll easily find it. Look forward to seeing you on the inside there. 